This is the second part of my interview with Hirander Misra, the chairman and CEO of GMEX Group and Sectex. We've discussed career and his career advice, and now we're going to dive deeply into a specific concept, one that we hear a lot about, but perhaps is not very well understood, tokenization. And I'm going to start with a quote that I just heard from actually the CEO of a company called Ledger, there's a tsunami of tokens. They are changing how we exchange value and it impacts trillions of dollars. Trillions. So yeah. is that a statement that you would agree with? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's something um, that we've been trying to quantify recently. Uh, a few years ago, the World Economic Forum spoke about 10% of global GDP being stored on blockchain by 2027. About six months ago, we tried to put that in numbers accounting for GDP growth. And we worked out that if that was true, that would be $24 trillion worth of assets stored on. Again, even if we become remotely even halfway towards that, that's a huge amount of, of money that's in uh, digital uh, cryptographic form. So really something potentially transformational. And remind us uh, how distributed ledger technology or blockchain allow creating assets? Cryptocurrency essentially is a form of digital asset that's on a network that's distributed across a large number of computers or you know nodes as I call it is a way of looking at that. Crypto is derived from the cryptographic technique, i.e. encryption techniques that are used to effectively make the network and therefore the assets on that network. And then you've heard, uh, you'd heard the term blockchain mentioned. I mean, blockchain is essentially uh, a distributed ledger, i.e. a distributed database uh, rather than a centralized database. And, and that's the way of looking at that is it's just a method for ensuring the integrity of transactional that is essentially a component of many cryptocurrencies. So you, know, you hear terms about mutability, and the ability to have immutable records and the ability to audit and trace that. So effect effectively, it, it's a recording mechanism as a form of database for, that's distributed across many nodes. And what happens is in native form, cryptocurrencies like uh, Bitcoin, which you'll have heard about um, as the first one, are on the Bitcoin blockchain. But then you also then have assets that use these cryptographic techniques, you know, Ethereum being one network that's used and to different forms of tokens can be created that have an underlying asset underneath them, like security tokens or real estate security tokens and other forms of assets like art, for example. Yes. And can you give us a bit of insight of how this tokenization process uh, works? Because I understand that uh, through the distributed ledger, the picture that I could send you that email and duplicate, we could just put it somewhere where it's uh, immutable and clearly identified. Now, how do we tokenize it, for example? It's really interesting because one of the things here is, you know, what are you actually buying in, in kind of crypto form by way of a digital asset? And a big debate at the moment is around the underlying and how you lock that and secure it and the um, intellectual property of certain assets like art and tokens that are overlaid on that. So again, ownership of the underlying and how secure that is, is important. The way of looking at that, and we'll speak about how we tokenize it, is almost like, you know, securities were in physical paper form in the olden days. Then they went electronic, a process called dematerialization. But to go electronic, those paper securities had to be held by custodians who actually locked the asset, held it securely, and therefore you had it in electronic form and that could move. And essentially, in terms of an underlying asset, let's say you've got artwork, 
that artwork could be held uh, in some kind of vault securely. And you then may create a digital art form, uh, a non-fungible token, for example, if the artwork's uh, unique. In other ways, if you're creating much like a company split into shares, you could also create fractional ownership where a token overlaid on the art is split into lots and lots of smaller. The process for doing that one, it's securing the asset, a physical asset in some form of vault or custody. Then it's essentially then validating that from a legal standpoint, that token can then be minted on some form of blockchain, whatever blockchain that you're using. And that token that's minted, for example, digital art can be minted in a form of, if it's fractional ownership, in lots of small increments, a bit like shares of a company. And, and then in the form of, let's say, one artwork could be millions of tokens or less. It's up to you how you devise that. And then you have the ability to buy and sell and, and then transfer those tokens in return for other types of cryptographic tokens or currencies or also uh, for currency or, or anything else of, of value as well. So let's assume that I have a valuable art piece, or I'll take an example from my favorite series, Billions, where the hero has a Van Gogh on his wall, because he's a billionaire. Yeah. Let's say instead of having it hanging on the wall, I want to tokenize it, and then we'll see what we can do with it. So you're talking about a vault. It's because there has to be some kind of proof of ownership and proof that the asset is somewhere, right? Yes. So there's two things there. One is, okay, you have this artwork and you have proof that the asset is somewhere and it's held somewhere that you trust in, in terms of you know, where it's being custodied. And then there'll be those that want a piece of that asset and it, it can be artwork, it, it can be classic cars. So you have a sense of uh, ownership uh, and ob obviously so, uh, with a view to also having an appreciation of value on those assets. But separately, there's a new phenomenon now called uh, non-fungible tokens or NFTs. Now, they're very interesting because it, it talks about the right to digitally own an individual form of art, for example. There are multiple forms of NFTs, but let's say I take artwork for an example. There's different variations because you, as George, may uh, or you know may, may own physical art. In in the series case, the, the billionaire may decide, okay, I'm going to retain ownership of that physical art, but I'm going to create a unique representation of that Van Gogh and effectively sell it to someone else because it's perceived value. Now that can be done in two ways. The digital representation can be entirely unique based on the underlying. In some cases, you may actually create the digital artwork, uh, but also sell the underlying alongside the digital artwork as well. In other cases, a bit like you create prints on the mango and you sell the prints, you, you may decide to create a number of copies of the physical asset. And then the, the reason they become an NFT is whether through some form of serial number or unique attribute, there's a level of uniqueness that's created that's un unique to that piece and then that's sold out as well. And then there's buyers willing to buy those and hold them in their digital wallets or sell them on. We're involved in a project where someone's contributing photography and wants to sell the digital images one-to-one -one uniquely. An artist has got 100 paintings. We'll be selling the physical, but with that, we'll also be providing an NFT for it and running a charity auction that's both virtual and on the ground as well. Yeah, that offers a lot of possibilities. So essentially, as long as you have proof of ownership, proof that the asset exists, it seems like you can tokenize a lot of things. I think one case that's more common is real estate, where there's already a paper trail that's very well established. But in fact, what you say about art, we could do it about anything, any object that can be valued. 
Yeah, and also actually beyond objects is another interesting area where sports stars or movie stars have, have also realized there's huge potential in this phenomenon where they themselves are an asset. And uh, obviously in some cases, they'll that's in, uh, in movies and, and the distribution rights or the IP around those or the music is, is owned by somebody else. But in other ways, with their own content, they, they can potentially... Um, sell that and monetize it and strengthen their brand and this is where the whole thing relates back to the influencer kind of social media and movement but the other thing where there's a whole democratized elements of this as well where let's say you're a promising sport but you're up and coming but for your own development you have limited funds at the beginning a bit like the old patronage model where in the olden days uh, artists used to be sponsored to produce pieces of work you know for rich benefactors here now all of a sudden the crowd can um, help finance you and take a proportion of your earnings as future value as a return for betting on you now to be able to drive your development. That could also be then transcended into education and other areas as well. Again, where university access and other means becomes much wider and not just for those that are privileged because it becomes an alternative means of financing uh, as well. So there's a real social impact to this as well as a commercial impact as well, which makes it very interesting. Okay, if it's a sport athlete, you might think I'm going to have an illustrious career. But in fact, that applies as well to someone who wants to go to university and therefore increase his prospect of career earnings. He could somehow tokenize himself to anyone who believes in him and, and they could participate in, its, in his or hers trajectory in the future. Yeah, so in terms of their future earnings, and it's the same with any up-and-coming musician or artist or sports star, and, and so effectively you're taking, by financing them the present value, you're taking a potential upside on future value. Now you could argue there's a link to finance here as we move ahead. We're not there yet, but it becomes really interesting because on the one hand, okay, you've got all these individual pieces of art, and obviously you've got a level of desirability where someone wants to own them, but equally you could potentially package a range of different artworks or types of artworks or other types of assets into a package and then offer those out, you know, in terms of wealth management and distribution out to investors who then take more of a portfolio approach on those on those assets. Similarly, some of these social impact that are looking at social impacts and education could do that with a large number of students, for example, because obviously one is it diversifies two they'll get some level of return back on that. But much like these kind of social impact bonds, that can be a small return rather than a large return. And it, it creates a level of financing away from just student loans that you and I may have been accustomed to in our time that still exist. Because obviously getting through education is very expensive these days as well. So I think these are elements that we don't quite see now, but we're really going to see over the next few years starting to emerge beyond the kind of NFT commercial phenomenon that we're seeing right now as well. You're opening my mind to perspectives that are mind-blowing. I want to go further back into that. But before doing so, I'd like to go back to the art world and a funny example that we discussed earlier. Let me tell you the story. So Dogecoin is famous. It's a cryptocurrency yeah. that uh, was tweeted by Elon Musk and reached billions of dollars, although it started as a joke. But the currency itself was inspired by a dog. And the dog is an actual dog. So the owner of the dog, who took a picture of the dog and created an NFT from it. This NFT was sold to a DAO collective for $4 million. And then they tokenized it into billions of, of tokens and sold it 
And there was so much appetite for it that this picture initially bought for four million was sold initially for 110 million dollars. And in the secondary market, it climbed to 550 million dollars. And now I think it's gone back, but it's still a, a lot of millions of dollars. So we've got NFTs and we've got tokenization of an NFT there. Could you just uh, walk us through uh, what you think happened? Yeah, so that started as almost a joke online, as a joke towards everything that was happening in terms of crypto and, and tokenization. It, it's just that then all, all of a sudden, when we spoke about the, the craze of NFTs and, and, and everything else that ensued, it, again, it, 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 was then an early, it was then an early incumbent of that craze. And it just meant that as more money and interest then converged on this type of asset class, that they say that all tides lift ships, but some rise more than others. That really happened and it, it created a kind of euphoria effect in its, in its own. But it's a very interesting story, but, but there is a tale of caution in all of this because there's some that think actually in the end, because it, it had no inherent value or utility, then value is always a perception, right? You know, if you look at gold as well from the start of time and now everyone's speaking about Bitcoin as an alternative hedge for inflation and things like that. So. Ultimately, there are supply and demand mechanics around this, and there's some proponents that think, yes, it's ultimately a race to zero. But actually, the irony of this is it started off as a joke, but as it's now being listed on multiple exchange platforms and, and being used to price other assets in a, as a medium of exchange, then it's actually gaining some level of utility, right, for different reasons as well. There is a counter to that, but there is a lesson in all of this in that, as you said at the start with the Ledger CEO, there are huge numbers of, of tokens, coins out there, uh, and much like shares uh, as well, there's good and bad. So you've got to make an informed decision on what it is that you're actually uh, buying into. Because increasingly, yes, there's a good side of these sorts of assets. And, and we talk about democratization, opening up access, ease of exchange. But with any type of asset where there's a large amount of potential value and future value, there also comes the usual scams or projects that are not so good. And we've seen this in the past with something called initial coin offerings, where utility tokens were supposed to have value based on the ecosystem that you built out. But a lot of those projects um, ended up being questionable and fell by the waste. But in the end, something has emerged now with genuine utility and decent projects because the phenomenon itself was great. It was just misused. In the same way with security tokens or NFTs, there will be misuse as well. But at the same time, when stability emerges, as it's beginning to happen, then the possibilities are endless, as you said. Yeah, I think my personal theory into what happened is they once they had this and they said, hey, do you want to be part of internet history? Because there's this picture of this dog that emerged as, as Dogecoin. And people would say, yeah, why not? Maybe they put one dollar or two and without thinking that there are 1 billion tokens. And therefore, if you, if you put $1, you value it at 1 billion. And really, I, I think it's, uh, in, if it was in the traditional securities, it could be uh, perhaps very fraudulent. So we definitely don't want to encourage that. But it's still a good example of what can be done. And I think at this stage, it would also be useful for us to be reminded of what are the difference between something that is tokenized versus the equity process, for example, because there are very different um, attributes to an, asset, to, to an asset. So could you walk us through that? Yeah, and, and this is interesting because I said a few years ago, um, I was at Malta Blockchain Conference and a large number of players were there, including all the large crypto exchanges. And I said, in a few years time, you know, if you look out five years from now and in a three to five year window, 
unregulated exchanges are ultimately going to die and their time is limited because whether it's the money trail in terms of the KYC ML, whether it's you're paying in cryptos or or fiat currency, or or whether it's any forms of derivatives on that, it's all got to be regulated in some way, shape or form. And we're we're beginning to see that increasingly because, again, with the Securities and Exchange Commission that regulates equities in the US, you know, in the US there's something called the Howey test, which validates whether something is a security or not. And even one of the large exchanges like Coinbase recently have had to withdraw a product because according to the SEC, it seemed to look more like some form of bond rather than some crypto, some type of crypto product. So increasingly now we're seeing regulators clamp down on activity and speaking to one regulator yesterday where they're saying a lot of our work in this area is going to be around enforcement. People claiming that certain things are regulated or or they appear to be, but in fact they should be and are not. And therefore we're going to clamp down on that and and get greater visibility. There There is a kind of global discussion going on as well if you look at standards because the whole thing's related to OECD standards and how different regulatory regimes and different regulators increasingly start to work together because of course this asset class has emerged it's grown phenomenally into areas that we couldn't have imagined but there are lack of standards globally but one common theme now is regulation if we look at securities take the view that that if we're tokenizing anything that's security like then it has to be regulated and where we're doing it has to fall under securities laws in that particular country and where we're distributing it has to fall under the securities laws uh, in, in those countries where we're selling the product. And, and ultimately, there's no such thing as a global exchange or a global bank or a global investment advisor. The issue that you have, by its very distributed nature, cryptocurrencies or security tokens c- can be cross-border or have no borders, but regulation does have borders. And therefore, a lot, is, a lot of this phenomenon around stable coins, which are you know, linked to some form of underlying currency like the dollar, or you, you look at security tokens and others, there's no easy um, answer. You just have to get regulated. And if you're carrying out activity, you have to work with others that are regulated elsewhere for this to happen as well. Yeah, so it, it could look a bit like the far wild west at the moment. But if we look at the future of this, it's in a regulated way and there's, there's no other way, really, if we're going to build something meaningful. And I think it's time to... So, you know, a lot's made... We always look at two sides of the story because there's a real split kind of school of thought. Some people are still advocating that cryptocurrencies, it's all about drug dealing, terrorist financing, and, and all of this, illegal activities. But actually, what one's got to remember is, with this level of traceability, it's very easy, even easier than a money trail, to know who's handled a cryptographic asset and how it moves through the system from the point of time it's originated. And there's equivalents where actually you can track anti-money laundering and KYC around these asset types. What are the inherent advantages of these assets? The great thing here is greater portability, transparency as well. We've spoken about some assets also being an alternative to kind of fiat currency and an inflation hedge as well, albeit, albeit other site that there's a level of volatility. If we relate this back to securities, typically there's a phenomenon called delivery versus payment. I'm selling shares, you're buying, you'll pay me typically with uh, currency, and then I'll, I'll deliver securities to you. When I say I deliver, typically it's been the role of intermediaries, broker dealers, and others, either over the counter or using the exchanges. But with digital assets, there's much more asset portability. So we speak about two ways of doing it. So you, it doesn't necessarily have to happen on some form of exchange. It can also be decentralized as well. 
where you, you, you know what you hold and I hold can be matched through something that's called smart contracts without any form of intermediary. But equally, the vast majority of crypto exchanges out there, or the vast number, are centralized. Even though, ironically, they're selling an asset class that, it's very, by its very nature, is decentralized. The thing about securities is, you know, it encourages less intermediaries but also lower costs because it's a lot easier uh, and faster to trade, uh, clear and settle. So the post-trade aspects in terms of that delivery versus payment becomes a lot more efficient. The other thing is where you're not using a centralized mechanism or, 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 or you, know, you, you want to tap into um, assets that are distributed, smart contracts and inherently the logic you can build into them because they are getting smarter both in terms of that form of exchange or dividend payments that attribute to that security also become a lot easier. So asset portability, transparency, they're all key metrics. And I think all of this, if used properly, will be game changing. What I would say is organizations trying to use this are merely creating the same structures that they had in the traditional world into digital. So they're not you know, merely automating, you know, what I call a paper-based process or what is already an electronic process. But the, the real benefits of the technology that we spoke about earlier, if they're harnessed, then the possibilities are endless. But I think there's always a vested interest to push and pull because on the one hand, you've got the decentralized finance world. On the other hand, you've got the centralized world, which makes a lot of money in being centralized, you know, correspondent banks and others. But the right answer is somewhere in between where the markets become more efficient, there is a level of regulation on this decentralized side. So we're going to see a hybrid construct emerge. So how about applying the best of both worlds and creating bridges between one and the other? When you hear blockchain out there, everyone speaks about blockchain as if it's one thing, right? It's one technology and yes, you're on the blockchain and then all your problems are solved. It's a bit like my laugh when... Um, you know, in the financial world, an illiquid corporate bonds, because there's lots of them are relatively illiquid and finding liquidity in those and matching buyers and sellers is quite difficult. Merely putting that onto a blockchain isn't going to be a magic wand to solve that problem. There's market structure issues you need to solve. Equally, when people speak about blockchain as one thing, it's not. There are lots and lots of blockchains out there and you could say, okay, there's 50 tangible ones. But they're all built on different technologies and typically very rarely do these different technologies speak to each other and also in many cases it's an atomic problem in, in its own and then you've got all of that on the one hand on on the decentralized side on the other side you've got central systems and on the clearing the settlement side you've got market infrastructure operators using systems that are 30 40 years old and some of them have still got cobalt code running in them so the challenge is okay you've got the centralized construct uh, a lot of it was pre-cloud as well even, uh, and you've got this decentralized construct, but actually in the real world, they can't just behave in silos. They've actually got to come together and they've got to integrate. And ultimately, if you're a retail customer or you're an asset manager or someone that's more traditional, a lot of the time you're less concerned about the technology or you don't want the hassle of new technology or lots of technologies. You just want the asset class packaged in a way that you can hold it or someone can hold it on your behalf, a bit like money in a bank account, for example. And you just want to know it's secure and it's there and you can move it easily if you want to move it right between different accounts or, or, or in, in the case of assets, buy and sell it. So I think we're going to see that middle layer now. Everyone kind of in the, in the last number of years has been focused on getting really excited about decentralized finance initiatives, exchanges, digital custodians that can hold these assets. But everyone's forgotten about the middle layer that's a complete spaghetti. And we're going to increasingly see that middle layer now as an area of focus to bridge that gap between the old and the new. 
And, and we very much see it as a construct that creates that hybrid bridge. And that's very much something even as an organization we're focused on. So there's DeFi also because of the name has inspired a really romantic view of things, but there's a much more practical aspect. And what you're telling us is this middle layer is key. And indeed, it, if we manage to apply the efficiency of the new technology to the way where assets are at the moment, it's game changing. But you talked about different blockchains, interoperability. There are a few names, though, that, that come to you know the top of mind when we talk about it, in particular Ethereum, or a lot of talking about, oh, can we make, can we use the Bitcoin network? Do you think there could be eventually a few winners in terms of blockchain that everyone will be building on? And those two are very strong candidates. Yeah, so it's really interesting because much like any new technology, you see a level of fragmentation initially and, and you'll see a lot of uh, folk jumping on the opportunity. They see the opportunity to build uh, an ecosystem and certainly you know, Bitcoin itself is designed for a specific purpose, you know, relating to the Bitcoin blockchain, relating to Bitcoin itself. Ethereum was the first of its kind where actually the phenomenon of running this so that others can build an ecosystem on top of it was key and and we've seen the vast majority of security tokens out there or nfts to date have been on the ethereum blockchain but typically that's also led to more traffic on that particular blockchain and therefore it's much more expensive in terms of what we call gas fees to be able to process transactions using that blockchain. And equally, some of these early protocols that are called proof of work protocols, there's always a lot made of the fact that, again, when you're mining a block, you know, everyone's speaking about net zero and car becoming carbon new, but actually it's very energy intensive as well, albeit green energy and other things can be used. So you, you've also then seen certain protocols emerge uh, that are more proof of stake protocols that, that kind of game-changing in, in many regards because they're less energy in, intended. Again, existing coins in the ecosystem can be can be pledged or staked to be able to reach consensus as well on every transaction and then sharing the value of that of that transaction. And even the likes of Ethereum with 2.0 are thinking about that and making the whole thing more efficient because when we talk about kind of payments moving to blockchain, if you go on the one hand, it's kind of B2B activity. On the other hand, it's retail payments. If you go to the counter and you purchase something, you don't want to be stood at the um, point of sale machine and wait six minutes for a transaction to, to, to complete. And so these things have to be more instantaneous. And the way that they're done one chain and off chain has to be more efficient. So we're seeing a lot of that emerge with more efficient protocols also beginning to emerge. Existing protocols also beginning to become more efficient and move with the times, because I think no one envisaged the level of volume of transactions that you'd see on these networks. But one thing's uh, really interesting, it's gonna lead to some interesting innovations because many of these ecosystems are now encouraging decentralized applications and other forms of activity over the top of them. And that's creating you know, genuine commerce and opportunity uh, from an entrepreneurial standpoint as well. And that's really uh, exciting because the barriers to entry to create new applications is lower than ever and uh, increasingly. So we can expect uh, ecosystems while the innovation keeps coming, whether it's new chains or innovations on existing chains. Yes. Because you're going to see a level of, you've got some of the early adopters and then you've got others that supersede those and then there's a level of recalibration, but new ways of doing things are continually emerging because it's still quite a nascent technology. Of course, ultimately, going back to your original question, what technology fragments, technology can knit together, and we are going to see 
a convergence around a smaller number of key ecosystems. And so everyone's on this race to build up their ecosystem, make their ecosystem and whatever form of value crypt cryptographic token they have related to that ecosystem the most valuable. And that's encouraging almost an arm, but in many ways that's good for the industry, but that will settle down as we move ahead. But with continued innovation, because you're also seeing the convergence of blockchain and AI, and we barely touch the surface of that. There's open questions around what does kind of IoT developing and quantum computing, what does that mean for all of this and how does that all fit in together? So we've got more new technologies emerging and developing than ever, and that's going to lead to some possibilities we can't even think about now. You know, a year from now, when we're speaking about this again, we'll be in a completely different place. I think we tend to be week on week almost. It's so fast moving. If we try to ground this into today's reality, yeah. what are some of the things that we can expect, for example, in capital markets in terms of um, significant improvements in the short term? So initially, when a lot of these traditional exchanges, even if they're using kind of networks, uh, they're all silos, a lot of them. Everyone trades and clears and settles in silos. Really, if we look at the way telecommunications networks got, got intertwined and it was much easier to port your number and it didn't really matter if I call you from one network and you're on another, it doesn't really matter what you're on. What we're going to now see is everyone's tried to build their kind of walled gardens and said, okay, everything's going to come into my garden and I'm going to be the big kind of elephant in the room. But ultimately, um, you're going to see this vertical and horizontal um, stack emerge where ultimately um, everything has to talk to everything else like a network of networks and and so what we're going to really begin to see in the near term is we speak about interoperability but what does that mean in reality you're going to see multiple markets multiple custodians multiple types of issuer platforms issuing securities and then being able to trade them on those secondary markets those assets being much like we hold money in different bank accounts across a broad range of custodians and banks uh, and the ability to transact between different assets whether it's Bitcoin against Ethereum across this broader network, or whether it's uh, Ethereum against US dollars, or whether it's Ethereum against central bank digital currencies as they emerge, you're going to see an easier way to swap assets. And that's going to be a B2C to B construct because you've seen the convergence of B2B and B2C. You've got interesting entities like PayPal coming into this um, space as well. You've got institutional banks coming into this space, and then some of them are also. Uh, looking at retail as well. So in the near term, we're seeing a level of convergence that's horizontal, moving away from that vertical stack. That's great because ultimately it makes it much easier to transact and beyond payments, but to exchange assets. And you live and die by the strengths of your own offering ultimately. But it you know, also provides an accelerated route to market then to launch new products. You're beginning to see the emergence of this. And I think over the next 12 months, this will really accelerate with that network of networks effect. So if we go back to our earlier examples of uh, real estate and painting, eventually th they can all somehow be swapped. I can somehow have invested or sold the property, tokenized it, sold a pr proportion of it, and end up with uh, a percentage of a picture of a dog if I'm unlucky, or another significant asset. And if you think about it today, selling a property is a big deal, and you have to sell the whole thing, and then you can, let's say, buy a painting, whereas now, and those are extreme examples, the, the, we could create fluidity between asset classes which are completely segregated. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's one thing in this where, you know, in certain jurisdictions, being able to do that with real estate will be easier than others because the technology has outpaced 
kind of land registries in certain countries or, or, or registrar of companies and things like that as well. So there'll be a level of convergence where the technology is then adopted and e-government and digital e-government's a big thing. And Middle Eastern governments, some of them have taken the lead and others look at, looking at this space. But absolutely, ultimately, you as a consumer will have a range of assets. They'll be represented in your wallet. You may or may not hold those wallet, wallets yourselves, depending on what you want to do. It, 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 it'll be much like now we're seeing you've got an app there. You can see how much money you hold, how, how much Dogecoin you hold, how much Bitcoin you hold. And then uh, it, you don't have to have access to the Bitcoin blockchain, but you're using an app and an organization that facilitates that for you. And then you can just move these assets around. And there's mechanisms for you to buy and sell those assets, as we've said, with that access as we go more horizontal to be able to access additional markets other sellers that are more decentralized and um, other uh, institutions as well to do what you need to do. But it just becomes a lot easier than now where we're logging into 15 different bank accounts with different systems. But also the KYC becomes a lot easier because there's something called zero knowledge proof where organizations can share KYC data based on a hash record without giving up key information or, or you, you could decide to only give up part of that information that's necessary. For example, at the moment, the other day, I went to a bar um, near where I live. I was quite flattered, actually, because I'm, because I'm 47, but they said, show me your ID. And obviously, I had to get out my driving license, but I've got all my details, including my address. But actually, all I needed to prove was my date of birth. But so now, zero knowledge proof allows you to do that. And also, you know, rather than repeat those KYC steps, if you give authorization for that to become a lot easier across organizations as well and share data or across regulators, so we're going to see that become less painful as well, which can only be a good thing. There's really a lot to unpack here, but uh, if I try to sum it up in terms of what we discussed on tokenization, the first point I would say is that tokenization is here and it's here to stay and it's a technology that works. So we can tokenize, if not everything, a lot of things as long as we can put them in a vault and identify the, their ownership. And also the future of this world, which might now be... I mentioned romantic and DeFi, I think, encourage us to think this way, but the future of it is regulated. Yes, and, and we hear terms like regulated DeFi, and it sounds like a contradiction in terms because regulation is centralized and DeFi is decentralized. But whether we like it or not, ultimately, institutions won't touch it unless it is regulated. And, and equally, even as individuals, we're going to have to prove the provenance of what we're doing. So ultimately, you know, regulation is a key development. We're already seeing that with, with recent news events across the world, and this will continue very much so over the coming next few years. Then if we look at, in particular, financial assets, if it is to fulfill its promise of a significant percentage of GDP, there's this middle layer that we discussed and the, the importance of building the bridges or build, working on these hybrid solutions, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's that network of networks because there could be a num number of bridges as well. All, all these bridges have to be accessible. Again, a road leads to a river and you can't cross the river. You cross that river and then there's multiple other ravines or, or rivers to cross. So ultimately, we're, we're going to see more of this interconnected with, with that infrastructure. It's much, more, uh, much easier to swap assets, to port assets, irrespective of whether they're centralized or whatever blockchain that you're using as well. Yeah, and ultimately that really makes me think of how does the future of investing for individuals, that's a thread in the podcast, but what we discussed about you could now, let's call it investing into 
a pool of university students or things like that. It gives really a different picture of investing where it's perhaps also something less active than what we're doing now, which is looking perhaps at the screen or the spreadsheet, but also more embedded into our daily activities. Investing, uh, investing in everything or investing all the time without uh, necessarily knowing it. Yeah, and, and there's also another interesting phenomenon as well, where a lot of our data is used, whether it's we're going to a supermarket, we pay by card or loyalty card, and then, you know, d data might be sold to hedge funds in derived or, you know, anonymized form, and then they know why, whether to buy Heinz or not, given the number of baked beans you're buying. But ultimately, what it's going to boil down to, again, through use of technology like this is, ultimately, our data is owned by us. And every time that data is used, we have the ability to monetize it. And there's platforms emerging that off offer that. But again, in that kind of level of democratization, data ownership goes back to source, to the originator of that data, whether it's an individual or an organization, that becomes easier to trace, but it also becomes easier to then get paid on its use in relative form uh, as well. Or if we go back to the movie industry as well, we spoke about art. A lot of the time, the producer takes a risk, but the producer might get an 8 to 10% return and then those intermediaries or those big organizations buying content really benefit from it many times over. And so you're going to see the ability to make it easier for things like movie financing using tokenization of assets and then a future return on those movies. But it also then inherently gives back a lot of the potential return relative to the risk back to the producer of those movies. Some of those barriers to entry will be eradicated and the intermediary chain will be reduced. We're not saying all intermediaries are, are bad. It just means that those that don't add any value and take all the cream are, are, are reduced. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yes, indeed. So we could have everyone that there's a lot of people contributing to a movie and they could all have, there's already chains, but uh, for a tokenized format, it would be a lot clearer and, uh, and they could participate in the value as the movie evolves. Let's say it's distributed somewhere else, etc. But what you're saying about our data is that we could do something similar as individuals. So, so for example, you know, your, your data, every, you, get, you go in somewhere and you, you have a retail purchase is, is then ultimately utilized and it's aggregated with everyone else's data and, and there's decisions made on that data. Whether it's a supermarket's predicting what you'll be buying next and it's not just in time inventory replacement, despite the issues we've got on UK supply chain, but it, it's all about predicting what the trends are going to be but ultimately, it's your data and your IP that's contributing to that. So why should you not be paid, even if it's a tiny fraction uh, of, uh, uh, of an amount, but why should you not be paid for your data? And there's going to be a big question as we go forward, who really owns the data, uh, who controls the data, right? Because we've gone down the road of big tech, and I'm not saying uh, you know, that's good or bad, that's led to many benefits. But there is going to be more democratization of data as we as we move forward in parallel to democratizing, as we spoke about, the ability to access financing for future education and other elements or sports development and everything else we speak about. Yes, indeed. So that's a better way to putting it than what I was trying to express in terms of we're investing all the time. It's not about investing. It's about getting some kind of return on your data, your IP, without having to make a conscious uh, effort like we do in investing today when I log in and buy some stocks. Yeah, wouldn't it be great? You're sat there, your data is being used and you know, you see that ticker just tick up much like you want the share price to tick up just because your data has been utilized and all of a sudden um, 
at the end of a month, you've got cash in your account, right? On the back of that. And again, it may sound far-fetched, but we're not too far away from that. I, I was at a recent crypto event and I've sat next to an organization that's put in place a model to do that. Of course, they'll make a tiny fraction in the middle, but, but at the same time, uh, a lot of that is being distributed back to the originator of that data. But it also creates a captive pool because that platform, it's for profit, but it will attract users because those users are then monetizing themselves via the platform. So the trend has already begun and it, it will manifest itself. Yes, and I can see the link with all this creator economy where people are already actively monetizing, not just what they're doing, but any, anything they create on the web. So that's definitely a fascinating perspective. There's a lot to consider. Any final thoughts, additional yeah, you want to share? That's where we see now a lot of models emerging, whether it's through this kind of thing or NFTs of, of that whole social media convergence and influencer convergence around, around this phenomenon. And we know influencers are good and bad because some have ended up plugging products that haven't necessarily been what uh, the consumer expected. But again, if used correctly, then it, it opens up this sort of monetization and not just investment, as you said, to a much wider audience and makes it a lot easier as well. And ultimately, everything is going to be app driven increasingly, whether it's decentralized or centralized. And again, at the young, younger generation now are very afraid with that. If I look at my kids, 14 and 10, they're, they're very comfortable using these types of technologies, even though we restrict their in-app purchases and things like that. Definitely. Yes. So. I think we'll conclude on that. Thank you so much, Hirander. Again, there's so much to consider and reflect, but we're delighted to have spoken to you and have this, again, perspective on the future. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. It's been really enjoyable.